In episode four of Killing Time, the podcast, we pick up our tale of murder in the morning. Immediately after Jennifer Farber Dulos' disappearance in New Canaan, Connecticut, police zero in on her husband, Fotis Dulos, his lover, Michelle Traconis, and Fotis' good buddy attorney, Kent Mahini. Each claimed they were at the Four Group office, which was located at the Four Jefferson Crossing address on the morning Jennifer went missing. The alibis and lies are piling up and about to topple. Now, here's Pamela K. Brown and Cynthia Fagan. As the prime suspect, Fotis Dulos is certainly leaving a trail of incriminating crumbs in the hours after Jennifer goes missing. And his mistress, Michelle Traconis, is not helping herself either when she refuses to return any of the New Canaan police calls. But little did they know, Fotis and Michelle were literally caught on camera by a pricey high-tech camera system set up in Hartford under the moniker C4, Capital City Command Center. So on a rainy and windy day, Pam and I hit the streets with former Hartford Deputy Police Chief Brian Foley. In the age of the protest, in, in the age of ACLU and, and Big Brother, uh, it was a sensitive topic for us to start to try to build this out. So we did it very carefully. Uh, and in that, we tried to convey and communicate to the citizens, to the neighborhoods, the neighborhood watch groups, um, all the stakeholders, like, hey, we're not putting these cameras up to watch you. It's for your protection. We're not hiding them. So we decided to blanket uh, the city as much as best we could in a camera system. And that included uh, the Northeast neighborhood, but it was also every neighborhood. We didn't want to make it seem like, one, we were offering protections to one neighborhood and not another. How did having these surveillance cameras help in terms of uh, being able to turn around the case and focus on the prime suspect? And the command staff from the state police walked in our office and said, hey, do you guys know where Center Street and Green Street are in that area in Hartford? We said, yeah, we do. And there was some surprise. Really, you guys know where it is? We said, yeah, I know exactly where it is. He says, well, what goes on? You know, because, you know, we have information that uh, that the suspect was in this area. My boss says, well, we can tell you in about five minutes. So we reached out to C4 uh, and within minutes uh, had the video that you've all seen. Surveillance footage captured the couple from hell driving together in a black Ford Raptor truck as photos dumped blood evidence, including Jennifer's T-shirt, bra, and a bloody car mat into garbage cans. It's a crystal clear image, and we've talked to various people that are defending some people, but yep. it's, there's just not one iota of question of the suspect, Mr. Fotis Dulos, and his girlfriend laying out of that truck. You know, again, as a homicide investigator, you you look for little tiny victories and little moments of something that brings you personal satisfaction. This broke the case wide open, and on June 1st, police were finally able to slap the cuffs on Fotis Dulos and his lover, Michelle Traconis. They had been staying at a hotel near their home. Both were charged with tampering with physical evidence and hindering prosecution in the first degree, but no murder charges. So Hartford should be very proud of this case. This is almost like a learning moment for other cities, perhaps. It was. Um, and what a, what a fantastic opportunity to tell, um, and we did at the time, the, the benefits of those cameras and, and the way they were used uh, for good. 
day after her arrest, Michelle Traconis has her first interview with police on June 2nd, 2019. Jennifer has been missing eight days. So let's listen carefully. Leading the questioning of Michelle is Western Connecticut Major Crime Squad's Detective John Kimball and his partner, Sergeant Kenneth Ventresca. It is a damning interview. Do you know where she is, and can you please tell us, or at least lead us in the right direction? I don't know, but I... And then we can worry about the other stuff later, because right now we need to find Jennifer. We went down (coughs) to the with photos on Friday the 24th and murdered Jennifer and where her body is. That's why we are here. We are not here to go back several times. Listen to me. You feel confident in a few things. First of all, I'm not saying you planned this. There was a lot of pre-planning that went into this. Listen to me. So this is property that you and Clotus have been on, but are you saying that you have no specific knowledge that Jennifer Dulles' body is in here? Because you don't know? I mean, I can tell you where we ride moto, but I never saw Let me ask you a very simple question. What do you think happened to Jennifer Dulles? For what you've said, you guys. No, no, no. Okay, no, what no, I know, no, no. I've seen in the newspaper that she got no, no. in the garage. No, they're asking you for your only your knowledge, not what you read in the newspaper, not what you think the. And I think that she's still somewhere hiding. But when you guys said that you find blood, I didn't want to stay in the house. That's the truth. Mine. Oh, I was scared. I was. Like, worried. About what? But Jennifer disappeared, and like, she's gonna come and she's gonna like kill me and Nicole. That's what was in my head. You thought Jennifer was gonna come and kill you and Nicole? One of the thoughts, yes. That was one of my thoughts. I'm, I'm a, being honest with you, I'm having a real hard time believing that you don't know what's going on here. I didn't know what's, what's going on, and up to now, I didn't see anything. Sitting next to Michelle Traconis is attorney Andrew Bowman. He no longer represents her. We spoke to Michelle Traconis's current defense attorney, John Schoenhorn. Um, just to ask you um, a question about Michelle, uh, you write out that there's, um, you, you have concerns, you've laid them out, that there are problems in the transcription of your client's interview. And you had an excerpt uh, in that where she is clearly sobbing, um, very upset. Uh, what do you think is literally m- missing uh, that that you feel uh, the police, the detectives in this case, were not doing? Let me just think about that for a second. Um, the first thing I say is that on that June, there, there were three separate interviews, one on June 2nd, one on June 6th, and then another on August 13th. And I'm going to emphasize my client was trying to help them. My client had a different lawyer and who was sitting there during these interviews. If you look at the clip, he's the gentleman in the beard uh, sitting. Mr. Bowman, I think? Yes, that's correct. There she is telling them what she knows, trying to help them, specifically saying over a dozen times, I count somewhere between 18 and 20 times total during these three hours of of interviews, I want to help you guys. Whatever you want to know, I'll, I'll travel the world if necessary to to help you find what happened to her. Suggesting places where Dulos um, uh, 
might have frequented places that you know, properties he owned, properties he was thinking of buying, uh, places she knew he had ridden his motorcycle. They had uh, motocross. Uh, they're not dirt bikes. They're more high-end kind of uh, off-road motorcycles. Cynthia, and besides the surveillance video, there was even more evidence. Documents, actually handwritten notes, scribed by Traconis, Fotis, and Mawini were found. Um, they, the police called these things, literally they referred to these as alibi scripts. They were found inside the Love Nest slash offices of four Jefferson Crossing, which also housed four group. And Pam, these were literally hourly blow-by-blow details of what she and Photo said, I'm going to put my hands in the air and do air quotes, agreed to that they did together on May 24th and May 25th, the day of Jennifer's disappearance and the day after. So everyone had to be on the same page, right? (laughs) Absolutely, figuratively and literally. Oh, boy. So cops said there was only one curious omission that stuck out like what I would call a sore thumb. Their trip to Hartford, where photos dumped the garbage bags of bloody evidence. They were caught on camera, for God's sake. Yeah, and even during uh, Michelle Draconis's sit-downs with detectives, she either recited these alibi scripts word by word or tried to revise her alibi when cops caught her in a bold-faced lie. John Schoenhorn. First of all, I will not, I will not, you know, people are using this term alibi scripts. That's something the, the police made up. That's in their script on how they want to present it. There is nothing, nothing improper writing down where you were during the day, especially since she told the police expressly, and it's in uh, the documents I filed uh, the other day, that says the divorce lawyer of Fotostoulos said, Listen, Jennifer Dulos is missing. You're going to, you know, saying to Fotis Dulos, you know, you're probably going to at least be questioned. You should account for your day, where you were during the day. And so, and he told her, well, we should account for our day. Apparently, there were many rewrites of the alibi scripts found in the four group office trash cans. She wrote down what she did. He wrote down what he did. Whether he wrote down anything that was uh, inaccurate she didn't know that. She didn't review his notes. And more to the point, and this is also something I put in my motion, she gave her original notes to her lawyer. And during that um, in, in interview, she says, I gave them to Mr. Bowman. And Mr. Bowman acknowledges that he has them right there in the video. Cynthia, let's drill down on the conflicting accounts of what Michelle Traconis did on the day of Jennifer's disappearance and murder. Yeah, well, what she said she did in her first interview with cops. Exactly. Here's what she first said. I wake up at Friday at 6.40 in the morning at the Jefferson Crossing home. Michelle claims photos in her shower together, fool around, before heading to the four-group office on the other side of the mansion. Right. At 8.15, Traconis says she saw photos with his pal Kent Mawinney in the four-group office. At 9.10 a.m., she says, I leave the office at Jefferson Crossing to drop off an item with a friend before heading to a local stop and shop. And, you know, Cynthia, this is where she decides suddenly to take selfies with a store robot named Marty. Wait, wait, wait a second, Pam. Sorry, but I'm from Manhattan, and we don't have robots roaming the food aisles of bodegas or Zabars. 
In fact, we don't even have a stop and shop. I mean, I'm telling you, Cynthia, they're scary. They're about eight feet tall, and they obviously take inventory as they roam the store. Cleanup needed in aisle nine. Caution. Hazard detected. I really find them annoying, but someone stuck googly eyes on them to try to make them less frightening. They scare the heck out of me. Uh, Kids kind of like them, but really, a murder alibi? Well, that's a new one in the book of alibis. I mean, Michelle actually had two others. These were friends she stopped by to say hello, and no robots were involved. But then, later on that day, Michelle had a lot of trouble accounting for the actual time she met Fotis for lunch. Remember, police say Jennifer was murdered in the morning, sometime between 8.05 and 10.30 a.m., while Michelle is taking selfies with a robot. You know, and people have to remember that New Canaan is nearly 70 miles away from Farmington. So there's a lot of driving going on in this day of murder. There are three locales the cops are focusing on, and we visited all of them. So we've got the house on Wells Lane that has the bloody scene left spattered on a Range Rover, but there's no Jennifer. We have the four-group office located at the home on Jefferson Crossing, where Fotis lives with Michelle and her daughter, Nicole. And now we have the 11,000-square-foot mansion, spec mansion, that Fotis built on 80 Mountain Spring Road. It's situated on five acres and is only two miles from the four-group office. Yeah, but you're going to need more than Google Maps to keep this all straight. Yeah, that lady that yells at you when you have your Google Maps and would be lost. (laughs) Well, uh, getting back to Michelle, uh, in her three interviews with cops, she gives conflicting times and lies about when she actually saw a photos on the day of the murder. And by interview three, she breaks down completely, admitting that photos was not in Jefferson Crossing House that morning, and he had strangely left his cell phone in the office. He completely forgot to take it with him. You mean that old trick? I left my phone so it's not actually where I say I am? Yeah, I guess that's like the dog ate my homework kind of uh, category. Mm. Well, Fotis thought, as we said, he thought he was being clever, leaving his cell phone there, because if checked, it would ping from that locale. And he also arranged for a friend to call him from Greece, specifically at 8.24 a.m., the same time he may have been killing Jennifer. Oh, that's so creepily convenient. Ugh. Well, Michelle says it was Kent Mawaney who ordered her to answer Fotis's phone that he had left in the office. It's only a 17-second conversation, but it was an additional ruse to make it look like Fotis was in the office. You know, Cynthia, I think we're really seeing how much planning in detail went into getting rid of Jennifer and making sure that she could never be found. Let's take a listen right now to part of Michelle's interviews with cops as she tries to explain how she was asked to drive two miles to meet Fotis in the afternoon at that spec mansion at 80 Mountain Spring. Now, now get this. Uh, She claims that she was there to, quote, clean the house for a showing and uh, wipe out that uh, old red Toyota truck that Fotis had borrowed from his employee to drive to the scene of the murder. It's an 11,000-square-foot house, Cynthia. Like, shows up with, uh, what, Windex and a paper towel? And then he walked and he grabbed me, he gave me a piece of paper over the toilet, the paper towel, and I put it inside where I had the bag of cleaning, what I was cleaning, the house. Okay, did did you see spilled coffee? No, I didn't see that. Did you see a coffee cup? 
I didn't look inside her car. Did the paper he, towel smell I, like coffee? No, I didn't smell well, it. Well, but still, you're holding but, it, coffee stinks. But I, you know, I hold the paper towel, but I didn't smell it. I didn't see that. But even paper. still, you didn't smell coffee. No. You know how coffee is when you smell it, it stinks. Uh, yeah. Smell it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. Did you ever hear of something called luminol? Mm -hmm. Luminol is something we use to look at evidence mm -hmm. to see if blood was somewhere. When it hits the blood, it illuminates. What's all that? That's blood. And where do you think that belongs to? Who do you think that belongs to? Jennifer. So apparently, side. Jennifer's blood makes him horny. So if you know stuff that you're not telling us, no, I don't that's know. the man you're protecting, because that's some sick shit. I'm not protecting shit. him. I'm not protecting him. Okay. I, I said, and I really don't want to see him ever again. We asked former FBI agent Ken Gray about the number of vehicles and the locations used to plan Jennifer's murder. The four-group property, the 80 Mountain Spring uh, property, which I call the staging house because publicly, in public reports, is that that's where um, the state police, Kimball, they caught a, a lie uh, by Metrocolonis in terms of where she was that morning. She had said that photos had been with her, uh, and, and that was not true because he had spent the night at that location before driving at whatever it was, 5.30 in the morning to go down to New Canaan to lay in wait for his estranged wife. Uh, I think Fotis Doulos's decision to use his employee's vehicle to to be the one to try to to remove himself uh, uh, from the situation with any of his own vehicles, I, I think that really threw a real complication in there because then after the fact he had to get the vehicle cleaned and he had to uh, to try to talk his employee into getting rid of the seats inside that vehicle and so uh, and, and the exchange of that vehicle they were over at the Mountain Spring Road residence when Gum Lemmy came back and tried to get his vehicle and so then he had to get them to uh, he had to go over and try to get his keys to go and take his car and leave. And so uh, that certainly threw a complication into the matter for them. The red Toyota truck belonged to Fotis's property manager, Powell Gamini, who wanted his truck back for the Memorial Day weekend, and there was more. Yeah, he wanted it because he used it for his um, sport. Uh, but and also, what didn't it jump out to you that in that he also photos was trying to make himself look like his employee and cutting his hair and they kind of looked sort of maybe alike was photos trying to set up his employee as the likely suspect hmm i i, I wasn't aware of that yeah that, that's in the report he actually altered his haircut he he shaved his hair to look or cut his hair to resemble his employee that employee was very suspicious of his boss photos at this point Rather than getting rid of the seats in his old Toyota truck as ordered, he kept them and gave them to the police. Jennifer's blood was on them. Ken, what, what in your experience is it likely that Jennifer will ever be found? That's a difficult question to answer. Uh, it depends on how her body was, was hidden. Uh, you know, uh, if, if, if they did not uh, dispose of the body in such a fashion that um, that it, it, somebody might discover it somehow, uh, I, there's a good likelihood that uh, it'll never be found. Cynthia, this reminds me of another murder case we are both familiar with, and it happened here in Connecticut. 
The wood chipper murder. Yes, and in that case, a husband was convicted of killing his wife and her body was never recovered. Former FBI agent Ken Gray recalled some similarities in that case too. This is not the first case in Connecticut where there's no body, but there is was a conviction for murder. Sure. Uh, back in 1986, uh, end of the year 1986, there was a uh, famous case here in Connecticut involving the, the murder of a uh, airline stewardess, uh, Hella Crafts, by her husband, who was a pilot for Eastern Airlines, Richard Crafts. Uh, Richard Crafts uh, murdered his wife, uh, cut her up with a chainsaw, and then disposed of her body during a snowstorm with a wood chipper uh, to, to get rid of the body. Uh, our own uh, Dr. Henry Lee was part of the Connecticut State Police team that, uh, that found enough evidence of uh, the remains of her, her body that survived through going through the wood chipper to, uh, to link her remains to her death that was used to uh, eventually convict uh, Richard Crass in that case. That was, you know, for our audience, they've seen definitely inspiration for, uh, for this series and movie Fargo based in part. Correct. Meanwhile, as the search for Jennifer continues, police discover something sinister. Six days before the mother of five went missing, a strange hole in the ground is discovered at the Windsor Rod and Gun Club in East Granby. And that's right near Farmington, Connecticut. And oddly, it's also where Fotis's pal, Kent Maweni, was very familiar having been a founding member of that club. Two hunters stumbled upon something that sure looked like a gravesite. Cynthia, get a load of this. this. I'm reading from page 14 of Mawinney's arrest warrant. While walking through the woods, the hunters discovered what they called disturbed ground. There was, quote, two barbecue grills which had been placed over a hole dug into the ground. Small branches and leaves had been placed on the grill grates to hide the pit beneath, end quote. Now, this hole dimensions are approximately two feet wide, six feet long, and three feet one of the men described the hole as, quote, a hundred percent human grave, end quote. Inside this hole was a blue tarp and two unopened bags of lime. So we asked Ken Gray about burial sites. Kent Mahoney, who, who may have been the one that set up the, uh, the potential uh, grave site there uh, up at, at the uh, Gun and Rod Club, uh, he may know the answer to that question. He may be the one that be able to eventually lead police to Jennifer's body, uh, to her final resting place. Is that uh, that he is still on the hook for this uh, for conspiracy to commit murder, um, and so there is potential here for him to uh, perhaps see uh, lesser charges if he were to provide that information. Michelle's attorney is kind of concerned and that Mawini is the likely guy being squeezed to flip on his client. Right. Who is Kent Mawini? We know that he was a lawyer, and we know that he's a friend of Fotis's. 
but it's just like a scene out of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Strangers on a Train. You know, there's this kind of weirdness uh, about the relationship between Kent and Winnie and Fotis Dulos. Oh, it's a great movie. It's about two men who randomly meet on a train and agree to kill someone in the other's life they want gone. Crisscross, Pam. Crisscross. That's what the two strangers called it. Moeni was also in his own bitter divorce battle. He had a restraining order filed against him, and he was arrested after he sexually assaulted his estranged wife in January of 2019. And it gets creepier. No kidding. Fotis starts to call Moeni's wife to urge her to reconcile with her husband, but she was too scared to meet with him at a restaurant. Mm. She told cops she thought, quote, thought Fotis was indebted to Moeni and that she believed Dulos was working on behalf of Mwenny to get rid of her. She later stated to police that she believed that Mwenny wanted her dead. And this is not a movie. This is real. So let's set this up. Kent Mwenny hates his wife. Fotis hates his wife. And this story turns into one of the wives being murdered. Fotis's mistress, Michelle Traconis, lies about where she is with Mwenny on the day that Jennifer disappears. In his initial interviews with police... Mawinney claims he had no memory the day that Jennifer disappeared. Now get this, Cynthia. He claimed he had suffered a concussion after falling down the stairs, and his phone broke. Oh, that's convenient. Well, Pam, it seems like legal troubles have shadowed Kent Mawinney even before he was charged with conspiracy to murder Jennifer Farber-Dulos in January of 2020. The guy sure knows how to step in it. Well, five months earlier, the disgraced ex-lawyer was accused by his estranged wife of raping and choking her. Oh, brother. Yeah, she claimed that he assaulted her as, quote, payment, end quote, for allowing her to live in his home as the two were divorcing. And this is according to the arrest report, which was cited by the Manchester Journal Inquirer. And if those allegations aren't sick enough, Mawinney's estranged wife claimed that he plotted with Fotis to kill her. Here's a quote from the arrest warrant. And we'll make it very clear here that Mr. Mawinney has pled not guilty. But here's what it says. The woman told state police she believed that her husband, Kent Mawinney, wanted her dead and that Fotis, with whom her husband had a professional relationship, was working on behalf of her husband to, quote, get rid of her, end quote. What a nice guy. Well, by the way, Mawenny was representing Fotos, who was being sued by Jennifer's mom, Gloria, over $2.5 million for misuse of funds. Follow the money. Mawenny was freed on a $150,000 bond in this sexual assault case. But that that isn't enough to fill a police blotter. Two months after Jennifer was murdered, Mawenny became a suspect in her disappearance. And he was charged with violating a court order of protection to keep away from his estranged wife. Well, I can see why Moeni and Dulos were pals. I mean, they share the same interest, allegedly wanting to get rid of their spouses. It certainly seems a lot more than just drunken bar talk. We reached out to Mawinney's criminal attorney, and Cynthia, you spoke to him. Well, unlike Michelle Jaconis's lawyer, John Schoenhorn, who was very willing to talk to us and gave us great insight into the background on his client, Mawinney's lawyer, Jeff Kestenbaum, had only this to say, and it was in an email to us. I quote, The following is my statement on behalf of Kent. Thank you for asking us to participate in your podcast about this case. 
We respectfully decline because the case is still pending and we will make our statement in court, end quote. And he signed it, Jeff. And we'll see him in court soon. Do you know where Jennifer Dulos is, Mr. Mawinney? By the way, that's a member of the press shouting outside a courthouse. Mawinney's role in Jennifer's murder is still very much on the state police investigative radar. Representing Michelle Traconis, attorney John Schoenhorn has a theory about the pressures put upon Mawinney. Because at this time, he is sitting in Cheshire Prison on domestic abuse charges. So, you know, here's a guy who's never been in jail before, and there he is in the Cheshire Correctional Institution in uh, Cheshire, Connecticut. And if you know anything about it, you look at pictures online. It's one of these early uh, 20th century, late 19th century buildings with the giant ceiling. It looks like Alcatraz with, you know, piers that open up onto a common area. It's, if, you, if you've seen any of these old 1930s prison movies, that's what Cheshire Correctional Institution looks like. Very gothic. Um, I, one thing, do you know yet what he, what he is going to say about Jennifer? Um, does he know what happened to her or where her body might be? I know what he said to the state police. I know that he's going to deny any involvement but he's going to claim that he just happened to stop by on the day before before the uh, disappearance of Jennifer Dulos and claim that there is uh, Fotis Dulos and my client just chatting away about how they plan on getting rid of uh, of uh, Dulos's wife. That that's my understanding is what he's going to is what he's going to say. He said he had nothing to do with it. He said, no, don't do that. You're winning in the divorce case. There's no need to do that. And he went home happily thinking that he had convinced Fotis Dulos, because my client wasn't in the room at that point, according to him, uh, that nothing was going to happen. In the meantime, following their first arrest, after being seen on video dumping bloody items belonging to Jennifer, Fotis and Michelle make bail. Fotos goes big and hires Pitbull lawyer Norm Pattis. If you recall, Pam, he defended InfoWars' Alex Jones, the radio talk show host who claimed that the 2012 Connecticut Newtown Elementary School massacre had been staged. It was stunning. It was stunning then. Uh, Pattis went further in this case. He took a page out of that playbook and accused Jennifer Farber-Dulos of staging her own abduction and murder in order to frame her husband. Early, it's just like the plot in the bestseller and movie Gone Girl. Norm Pattis on the courthouse steps, June 11th, 2019. Um, you heard us say today in court uh, uh, comments that Jennifer made to Mr. Dulos that give us grave concerns for her safety and well-being. Um, we are actively contemplating a revenge suicide hypothesis as an explanation for her disappearance. Jennifer's family and friends were horrified at this trash talk. Farber family attorney Richard P. Weinstein and Carrie Luft. Um, this is not Gone Girl. Everything I know about Jennifer Farber, she would never leave those children. You know, the, the greatest responsibility lies with the human being who should have had a conscience and should never have uh, wanted to visit violence upon his estranged partner. So... You know, all, all, I lay all of the responsibility at his feet. Photos spoke only of the children he failed to support. I just want to tell my children that they're constantly on my mind. 
and that I love them and I miss them very much. The documents I had received and what I had been told about the divorce, the fact that Fotis had not, in fact, paid any money in terms of support for the children or obviously alimony. Yeah, that's correct. He, he did not pay one dime in child support. The summer of 2019 grinds on. Jennifer's disappearance is blown off the front pages of the news when pedophile Jeffrey Epstein is arrested. But Connecticut State Police detectives are still hard at work searching for Jennifer. But no luck. At the same time, Gloria Farber's attorney, Richard P. Weinstein, faces off with Fotis in civil court. He's trying to reclaim the millions of dollars that Jennifer's late father, Hilliard, had lent Fotis to keep his failing luxury construction business afloat. There were millions of dollars. It could have been over the course of the years. It could have been as much as $10 million. So while Fotis is under investigation for killing his wife, he is also being sued by Jennifer's family for refusing to pay back the hefty business loans. After a December 2019 civil court appearance, Fotis brazenly taunts the Farber family and mentions Jennifer by name. All I want to say is that I wish uh, Jennifer and her family uh, happy holidays. And uh, I just pray that they give my kids uh, my love and my, my best wishes. A few weeks later, after that taunt by Fotis, after 429 pages of search warrants had been fully executed, the noose tightened around the most likely suspects. FOTUS's attorney, Norm Pattis, speaks to the press. I haven't seen the warrant. I'll be surprised if they can win it. Mr. Dulos contends he was not involved, and I don't think the evidence will show that he was. But you can imagine what it's like to say to someone, prepare for the bottom to fall out of your world. Today is a somber day. Um, in, a, in a paradoxical way, we welcome this fight because we think we will win it. Um, in fact, we're confident we will. And now we won't have to speculate about what it looks like any longer. The Connecticut State Police make their own announcement. Western District, in conjunction with Central District major crime detectives, were able to get enough evidence to affect the arrests of three following individuals. Photos Doulos, who was charged with murder, felony murder, and kidnapping, with a court-set bond of $6 million. Michelle Traconis, charged with conspiracy to commit murder, with a court-set bond of $2 million. Kent Mowinney, charged with conspiracy to commit murder, also with a court-set bond of $2 million. But it's cold comfort for the Farber family. Carrie Luft. Jennifer is still missing, uh, which makes it, I think, additionally difficult to process one's grief and all of the feelings surrounding this whole tragedy, which, you know, has, has unfolded over the course of a year and a half now, you know, given that the investigation is still ongoing. Fotis Dulos is finally under arrest, but he has one final trick up his sleeve to keep from going to prison for the murder of his wife. And it's a stunner. They could see through a window that Mr. Dulos was sitting in his vehicle and he had obvious signs of medical distress. And why was Bob the Bonefinder brought in by Connecticut State Police to look for Jennifer's remains at the Speck Mansion owned by Fotis? And there was two areas uh, in the woods there that were just about 
size of a grave. That's coming up on episode five of Killing Time, the podcast, as Murder in the Morning continues. (laughs) 